Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello there, OFAD lads and lasses. Now, this is actually our second take here. I made a little mistake and uh, I forgot to hit record. So we're going to repeat all of our jokes that we made the first time when I didn't record. And they're going to sound very uh, rehearsed and inorganic. We made a joke, first of all, about lads and lasses, that it is a Presbyterian statement. Uh, that's something that, that the Scottish people say. By we, we mean you. That's right. Yeah. No, speaking of lads and lasses, uh, I think this is the first time I have ever called our listeners lads and lasses, because usually it's Andrew that, that says these things. So, Except now it's the second time, because this is our second take of of going through this. That's right. And the long story short, to spare you our jokes, I guess when I do the introduction, uh, I'll, I'll go from the Dutch and continental side and call you Ofad uh, Falcon, uh, the, the youngins in Maisha. So, uh, hi, I'm your co-host, Caleb Castro. And I am also your co-host, Andrew Smith. We're here today uh, because of the Pope. Yeah. It's uh, time again to check in on our favorite Antichrist and man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. That is called the Westminster Confession of Faith in its original form. Yeah. And it's interesting because the Pope actually hasn't changed very much. We like to think he has, but as we'll see today, there's not a whole big difference with Popes of the past, right, Andrew? Yeah, which uh, actually the Westminster Confession has now changed. You'll notice if you are a member of the PCA or OPC, your confession doesn't say that anymore. That was one of the... American revisions that was scrubbed in the late 18th century when the American Presbyterian Church was formed. But just like to say, uh, just because we do not, as a point of doctrine any longer, confess that the Pope is Antichrist, doesn't mean that the Pope has stopped being Antichrist. <laughs> it doesn't mean he isn't. <laughs> uh, it, it, no, it doesn't say that he's not, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the revisions didn't say that. We just no longer demand it as a as an article of faith, but Pope is still pretty antichristy as we're going to find out today. Uh, times times have definitely changed on rhetoric. In the Heidelberg Catechism of Lord's Day uh, 30 on question answer 80, you know, the, the original question read, what's the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? Uh, which goes on to speak about it being, you know, an abomination, a uh, curse of idolatry. You know, that was changed recently uh, to announce Romish, uh, the Roman Catholic Mass. But uh, it doesn't quite have the same zing as calling something a Popish Mass. Yeah. It's classic. Anyways, well, we're not here to complain about that or talk about the pros and cons in the language of confessions. But we are here to talk about the Pope. And uh, yeah, the Pope's been making some headlines recently. Yeah. Seems like the papacy is so bad. The papacy is so bad. Is that what we're calling this episode? It might well be. It might well be. Episode. You know what? Let's go back to the beginning, though. Before we get to some of the current events, let's talk a little bit about how the papacy came to be. I mean, it's a pretty long story. It's about 1,100 years of history before you really started to hit the height of papal power. 
we're not going to do the entire thing. We won't keep you captive here and hitting every single detail, but just the greatest hits, the papacy greatest hits. Yep. All right, Andrew. In the beginning, let's let's go back to the church. One of the classic claims, I guess, of Roman Catholicism that they would assert over and against Protestantism is that the Pope occupies the throne of Peter, the seat of St. Peter, that being the Apostle Peter, that essentially Peter, during his life, would have gone to Rome and would have been the supreme bishop of the Church of Rome and established himself in an office which was meant to continue throughout the rest of church history, and they would say has continued all throughout church history. The problem is, you look at uh, how the history has actually played out, it's really not the case. It's really not how it's gone down. You have to go several hundred years before you even begin to start to see uh, this idea of the papacy or of papal primacy uh, emerging in the church. That's just a popular story, uh, particularly along so-called Roman Catholic laity, the, uh, the average churchgoer. The theologians, um, since uh, at least the uh, 20th century or second half of the 20th century, uh, if you were to go into like the New Catholic Encyclopedia um, or other such newer works, the Roman Catholic theologians would say, yeah, that the, there wasn't a papacy and neither would Peter have understood himself as being the head, uh, you know, bishop of bishops. That it was something that arose over time. They would actually appeal to uh, saying that it became the viewpoint and tradition several hundred years later. What they have in their system of doctrine is basically when a tradition can develop, they'll say, okay, well, there's that tradition. We can now point back in scripture. We can now point back in church history and say, well, the teaching was really there all along. It just didn't um, develop into practice until later. So the concept through Matthew 16 with the keys of the kingdom and going to Peter, Peter himself would not have understood him as uh, himself as bishop of bishops. Neither did others for a couple hundred years, but it became a realization later and could be read back into time. Although that's not to say that this was a, even as it developed these hundreds of years later, that it was not a contested claim. Right. <laughs> because you got to realize while there was the Bishop of Rome and the Western Church was largely centered in and around Rome, there were rival claims to this preeminency among bishops. So uh, what happens is uh, we would obviously argue from our position that the initial government of the church was not uh, Episcopal. You see this in things like the Jerusalem Council. You have the apostles and elders together making a decision. That sure looks a lot more Presbyterian to me, just saying. <laughs> but the issue is, you know, over time, episcopacy forms, hierarchy forms, but there are in certain ways these rival claims to who's really the big dog because you have a bishop in Rome, but then you also, for instance, have a bishop in Constantinople, a city we now know as Istanbul and Turkey. Yeah, why why did Constantinople get the works? Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> well, that's that's nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> Thank you, Schoolhouse Rock. Um, I think that was they might be giants, but I think uh, they did anyway. it for the Schoolhouse Rock. Maybe they. I don't know. Doesn't <laughs> We're gonna matter. need to contact. But anyway, them. so there was a bishop in Constantinople. There was uh, rival claims of 
patriarchy uh, in other parts of the church, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Moscow later as the Russian Orthodox Church begins to emerge. <laughs> Not Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually I think I pronounced, because in Russia it's Moscow, mm -hmm. but in Idaho it's Moscow. <laughs> you pronounced it as Idaho, yeah. Uh, the locals will tell you. Um, I, I, I have a sister that's lived near Moscow, Idaho for several years, and so she's always quick to correct that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, beside the point. So you have these rival bishops that are over large portions of the church, particularly in the Eastern Church. And really one of the key points of division and separation between the Eastern Church and the Western Church would be uh, over this issue of papal primacy. The Bishop of Rome, as the papacy emerged, wanted to rule it all. And the East was like, hey, wait a minute, we got our own stuff and our own bishops over here, and we think we just have just as legitimate of a claim to ruling over it as you do. Yeah. Perhaps an oversimplification, but kind of kind of how things shook out. Yeah, yeah this, this large overhead of a slow seizing of power over, like we said, roughly 900 to 1100 years that's largely tied to geography. Though, and going further back with what uh, Andrew said... That, yeah, the, the original form of church government is Presbyterial, meaning elder-run, right? You can find in Scripture, uh, you look at Acts 20, uh, verses 17, 18, and 28, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 2, uh, and so on. Now, you, you see a clear interchange of the term for elder and the term for bishop. They're the same, scripturally speaking. The elders were referred to as overseers. You know, presbyteros. Uh, there, they could also be translated as episcopos, or as we know of bishop. You see this even reflected in First uh, Clement uh, forty-three that around a hundred A.D. Uh, those terms are still being used interchangeably. In the early church, if you were to read Justin Martyr, his first apology, and then if you were to read like Tertullian in his apology and various other writings of his, you'll find that um, they'll make reference to something called the president, which is a, a contraction for the presiding minister. They say that there was a, there was an elder in the church who would lead a, a worship service in prayer and exhort and preach. So whoever was was the elder that was leading the service and exhorting the congregation as they they took turns in the beginning, they were known as the the president, the ruler. The word was related to overseer or bishop. Typically, this was the pastor of the congregation, the presbyter of the congregation, but not everybody had a, a very well-trained or devoted pastor um, in the congregation. You know, you didn't always have a minister available. So the elders did take turns exhorting. This is all recorded up until 100, 155 AD, and even going towards the end of that second century, as Tertullian is talking about. This is the case that these words are being used. But you know around this time as well that there were some heresies that were really developing. They would eventually culminate in things like uh, Arianism and uh, Apollinarianism uh, in Docetism, you know, all, basically all these trinitarian and christological heresies that had to do with the two natures of christ and whether he's the son of god for eternity whether he was an adopted creature heresies were coming up and so they became a bigger and bigger need to have a trained ordained minister that was the one preaching to the congregation uh, actually several of the uh the heretics that arose in the early church they were elders and not ministers 
The president was also the, the president, the presiding minister. This was also referred to as not just the one that would lead in a worship assembly, but also the one who would lead church meetings or council meetings, uh, a local congregation's group of elders coming together. So the, the president uh, was the one who would, as we might say in the modern period, who would chair the meeting or who would be the chairman of a consistory or a moderator of a session. Of course, according to Robert's rules of order. Just kidding. Those didn't come till later. (laughs) (laughs) Point of order. Um, This doesn't mean that it was actually the minister at first that was presiding over these meetings. It could have been, like I said, whoever was kind of in charge of the meetings was referred to as the presiding minister. So it could have been an elder as well. This person in these church meetings was also the one who would pronounce the sentence in the exercising of church discipline. Now, so again, normally this was a minister, but elders did sometimes lead these meetings, uh, competent elders or where a minister was unavailable or what we would call the minister. We see then that whether in the pulpit or council, whoever was presiding the gathering in behalf of the church was president and regarded as the first among equals, as Tertullian would say. This is an important distinction to make, because when we think about the role of a president, or as we would think in our modern uh, Presbyterian and reform context, a moderator, you know, so for instance, in the OPC, all of our assemblies have moderators, our session and Presbyterian General Assembly. Caleb, remind me, in the URC, do they call it a moderator? Or Generally chairman. Okay. In a certain sense, it's an office insofar as it has a particular role to play in the assembly. But it's not a role, for one thing, it's not a permanent role. Like, for instance, for us, we we have new moderators every year for our assemblies. And uh, while there are particular uh, powers, but also particular responsibilities, it's not as though they are uh, the power to unilaterally do things. Our moderators are still subject to, well, they're subject to church order. They are subject to, you know, potential removal and discipline and all the other things that come with it. Should they err? Should they go wayward? They're not given this power to lord it over. Mm -hmm. They're not given this power to uh, dominate and to basically be able to tell everybody else what to do. There's mutual accountability there. That's what we were saying with that phrase, first among equals. Someone who, yeah, is, is recognized in the sense of being appointed in a place of leadership, in this case, over the assembly of uh, the group of elders uh, in a congregation, or over the congregation itself in its uh, public worship. Well, in addition, elders from several congregations in the surrounding areas will send delegates to meet with each other. And a man among these group of elders in from these various congregations would be chosen to preside over that meeting. Now, think back to this this period, though. We're talking somewhere in the in the second century. By already 168 AD, according to Theophilus, uh, there were already some first among equals who were gaining a lot of influence and power. And, and, and just think of it in, in a practical and logical sense. Um, if you're a Presbyterian or Reformed, like Andrew said, Uh, You guys change, you said, uh, moderator every year or so. But that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that the same person can't become a moderator again a couple years later. Mm -hmm. Or for us, sometimes you could get the same chairman in a synod several years in a row 
Uh, simply because it's someone who's recognized as being uh, really good in keeping order, someone who's trustworthy to lead in the assembly, right? So prominent individuals mm-hmm. certain who are like, you know, go-to guys in your presbytery, go-to guys in a classis. I need help with this, this, and this matter or something like that. Who should I call? Who should I talk with? You know, okay, well, everybody knows that Reverend such and such is like the church order guru. Um, or the uh, theology expert, right? So there's, yeah. there's go-to guys with certain skills, and those might become very prominent guys uh, in the denomination as a whole. Well, now go back to the early church where there's a shortage of actual ministers. Guys that are able to devote themselves to a full-time ministry uh, in the church uh, who are educated in verse, you know, in the languages, people who could aptly preach and bear in mind that this is in a time in the early church where the church does not yet have any formal uh, civil recognition. Yeah. In many places, the the practice of Christianity, the observance of it is illegal. Mm-hmm. So as difficult as it can be in a situation where Christianity is legal and even recognized for one to do all that is necessary to become a minister. Imagine how much more difficult it would be in a situation where you're basically having to do all of this underground. Mm-hmm. In some of it's just normal process with churches in, in certain areas, too. With like, uh, I mean, Andrew, for example, I think has mentioned before, he's the installed minister uh, of one congregation in the OPC, but he's also helping out and does services for the OPC and the town over who has a vacant pulpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not unheard of, but especially in the time where, yeah, you have persecution and then there's no cars or anything like that or trains to take you in between these towns. Well, then as the church is is growing, as you have more converts from uh, Judaism and from paganism, the church is spreading and growing. You have congregations in these various towns that don't have ordained ministers. This then requires the president or the minister of the nearest large city, right? Urban areas usually have more congregants and they'll tend to be the ones that first get ministers uh, generally, even to this day. The minister or president of the nearest large city would help oversee several local congregations at a time, all the other little village churches in the surrounding area. Eventually, uh, this, this person would become known, this overseer, this trustworthy pastor who's helping oversee various villages outside the city. He became known as a metropolitan. Rome was one of these cities where its minister, its overseer, or its metropolitan, was overseeing various congregations. And he had a name, this metropolitan. He was referred to as uh, Il Papa, or the Father. This practice would also be picked up in, you know, Greek areas too. Constantinople, the uh, metropolitan of that city in the surrounding areas was called a uh, patriarch from pater, literally father. Which it is fascinating that given that Jesus said, you know, let no man call you father. <laughs> I was just going to say the same the thing. Title that, that all of these guys in all of these places gravitated towards. It's like you, that's the, that's exactly the thing you were not supposed to do. And it's what they did. Yeah, so you you can see how that could develop where it's a uh, not not excusing it. It's against scripture. It's against Christ. But you, you can see how this is developing where people are wanting to do this, uh, you know, reverential title or something to these leaders. 
So you have guys in these metropolitan areas that are gaining a lot of influence and initially not a bad thing because they were trying to help these little village churches in the surrounding area. They were basically the central spot where everyone could go to when they knew they needed help or presiding over an issue, whatever. These metropolitans were gaining a lot of influence, a lot of power, though at this point in 168, they were still considered first among equals. Yet, the other ministers generally deferred to them. Why? They're experienced guys and proven, they're proven leaders. You get this sometimes too, where you know, younger ministers might defer to older ministers who have a lot more experience. It doesn't make them a lesser office necessarily, but these are normal things. Well, some of the most prominent uh, metropolitan overseers, these ministers, these bishops, started to rule not only over one city region, but in, in Canon 6 of the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, we are already being told that, like Andrew was talking about earlier, that you had basically these entire regions, uh, not just the city area, but large-scale regions that were becoming very notable. You mentioned Constantinople, for example. Well, at 325... There was the Metropolitan of Alexandria, all right, Alexandria in Egypt. The Bishop of Alexandria, a big city, was granted permission to rule over all churches in Egypt, and not just Egypt, but also Libya and the five cities, the Pentopolis, all right? So this is one bishop in Alexandria who is now overseeing Two countries in a uh, Egypt and Libya in an enormous region of five churches called the Pentopolis. Well, similar practices had been happening in Antioch, in Rome, and later, as Andrew mentioned, Constantinople and Moscow. And these leaders in these other towns became known as, again, patriarchs. Yep. So you you just see a, a general growing of power. Andrew said it again, where it's like, yeah, there, there's a gravitation towards hierarchy. Unless we sit back and say, man, I'm glad we're Protestants so that we don't have this and we don't do this. We must recognize that we are all, in all times and in all ways, inclined towards this hierarchy naturally. Now, this doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's biblical. We've already given some of the reasons why this hierarchy and such is not the biblical form of church government. But let me just let me just toss out a few names. And this is not to offer any particular ideas on these individuals, but I'm just going to toss out a, a few names of guys in Protestant churches who you can tell clearly they have, uh, in various ways... Uh, sort of taken on this power greater than their office. So I think, for instance, of guys like John MacArthur out there on the West Coast, or Tim Keller uh, recently passed away, but his life and his work through uh, church planting networks and things of the sort are going back in the days a little bit. Mark Driscoll or Matt Chandler of the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. That is going back. <laughs> Doug Wilson mm. is another one. You have these singular figures who, you know, for whatever their actual position in the church is and whatever particular ecclesiology they hold to and are serving unto, we have a tendency to kind of put people like this up on pedestals and sort of make them these quasi-papal figures, even among Protestants, even among 
you know, places that would be as, as far from Rome theologically as we would like to be. This is uh, not necessarily even a fault of uh, the individual. Some might have that desire, some may not. And this is not necessarily speaking to each of their motives, but especially in our American tendency to uh, celebritize, to follow key famous figures and entertainers, which is largely a human thing too, but America especially has this. We gravitate to what we see as larger-than-life characters. Yeah, and it's not always for bad reasons. I mean, a lot of times it's because we see fruitful ministry and we see success and we see things that seem to be working and having an impact for the kingdom, and we're like, hey... This guy's clearly on to something. He's clearly gifted and has ability. The The problem is then everybody starts trying to imitate or puts these guys up on pedestals. And, you know, of some of those ones I've listed, mm-hmm. they've gone through spectacular downfalls mm-hmm. because the, the truth is, you know, God has intended his ministers and the leaders of his church to be accountable and to not lord it over. And we're all gifted in different ways. You know, if I'm out here in very rural South Dakota, Tim Keller's philosophy of ministry is probably not going to work quite so well out here. Right. On the flip side, if I were to go to New York City, you know, what I've been doing out here would probably, they'd probably think I was very strange. So. And yet that point is, yeah, where that authority originates truly. Outside of our our polity, uh, either Presbyterian or Reformed, we're saying the source comes from Christ. And even that that article of the Westminster that we were joking about earlier, the full text of it, it starts, so this is the original Westminster uh, 35.6, it says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main point. And then from there it says, Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, and then goes on to ascribe all those uh, wonderful attributes of the Pope, Antichrist, (laughs) and so forth. But the point is, Christ is the head of his church. Only Christ has this supreme authority over all of it. We have that same teaching in, uh, not not about the Pope as Antichrist, unfortunately, but in Belgian Confession, Article 31, uh, it says that, Uh, The ministers of the word have equally the same power and authority wheresoever they are, as they are all ministers of Christ, who is the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. So he's the only overseer, uh, ultimately, of the church wherever it is found, of his people, in all times and places, uh, heaven and earth. You get the phrase uh, of bishop and overseer then, well... You're starting to see how that term bishop or overseer really started to be applied uh, in these metropolitan areas as overseeing all these various villages and then eventually even countries, right? So you had some several churches then or several particular metropolitans that were overseeing the entirety of Christianity of the Christian world by about, what did we say, 325. What about Rome? Now, Andrew had already started bringing it up that the the Pope started seeing himself as a successor of Peter in in appealing to Matthew 16, uh, receiving the keys of the kingdom. The Roman bishop was arguing that he was the bishop of bishops, the overseer of overseers uh, in this line of Peter. There were some appeals to this concept around the 300s, even though Cyprian, uh, who was a president of the Seventh Council of Carthage, again, an elder, actually, not a minister, but 
Cyprian, uh, who presided over the Seventh Council of Carthage, 256 AD, he was pushing against the idea of a Roman supremacy, uh, of a Roman primacy uh, of which all must defer to. You can also hear it uh, appealed uh, with uh, Cyril of Alexandria in his uh, second epistle to Nestorius later on. And then even uh, Augustine will refer to the Roman primacy as not having as much power as it was claiming to have. That's throughout the mid-200s and into the early 400s that Rome was trying to bully his way over other people. In 384-398, at this point, Augustine's a, uh, you know, a, a young theologian or, or mid-age theologian or so. You had two Roman bishops in a row, uh, Bishop Sericius and the Bishop Innocent, bishops of Rome, who had issued the first church decretals, or basically, decretals were proclamations that the Roman emperors had used whenever they were sending out a an official empirical decree that was binding on all territories of Rome that everyone had to follow. Sericius and Innocent uh, copied that format of the Roman emperor's decrees, and they made those as proclamations or decretals over uh, the entire church. And that's an important note, as Innocent was the, the so-called Bishop of Rome, the Pope, in the period where the Roman Empire collapsed uh, in 410 AD. Sericius, seeing the decline of the empire, and Innocent, who was uh, alive at the fall of the Roman Empire, they were trying to keep things together. They were trying to maintain a unity of all these territories where basically the churches were being planted and there was something of a vacuum of power that was occurring because the, the empirical throne was weakening. The papacy, basically, the Bishop of Rome swept in there to start imitating the style of ruling as emperors and trying to, uh, in their view also, hold together Christendom. Let us bear in mind, though, that already by this point, we're nearly 400 years removed from the time of Christ and only now starting to see the emergence of anything that would resemble the papacy as we know it now. So for those who want to trace an unbroken line of succession all the way back to Peter, it's pretty sketchy. It's not really holding up. Actually on that, to kind of fast forward through here again, uh, maybe another time we'll pick up more details if there's ever interest, but just to kind of fast forward through things a little bit quicker here, unless we have seven episodes on this, uh, at my fault, you did start in 400, 500, 600, start to see some uh, what we might consider classic arguments uh, from the papacy, uh, being successor of the Pope, uh, start to emerge. Uh, Leo, the so-called great, uh, Pope Leo the Great, 440 to 461, started to grab onto the idea of uh, a successor of the throne of Peter. Basically, as the next couple hundred years start going on, there were more and more imitations of the Roman Empire coming up in the bishopric. The Roman church, the Roman bishop starts imitating the emperor's uh, the old glory of the empire, even, even referring to himself as the supreme pontiff, uh, a title for the pagan uh, high priest of Rome's original state religion. You started getting the concepts of vicar, the representative of Christ on earth. You started getting writings that were setting down basically concepts of a papal code. 
You had Gregory the Great that was making a, a declaration of a theological theory called purgatory, who put it forward without support from church councils, without church gathering to agree on this concept. He started telling monasteries, hey, all monasteries should start reporting directly to me. This is all going on as he's calling him saying that, he, you know, no man can call himself the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on earth. Anyone who calls himself vicar of Christ is antichrist, he said. So by then, we're just so we're clear where we're at in the timeline. By now, we're in the seventh century and still the bishop of Rome saying you can't call yourself the vicar of Christ. Yeah. So there's still a holdout. Six hundred <laughs> over six hundred years removed from Christ, and that's still not okay. Well, in in seven hundred and fifty, you had a a huge turn, a huge shift in the events, so to speak. Basically, at seven hundred and fifty A.D., a document called the Donation of Constantine appeared, which this claimed that the Emperor Constantine gave Sylvester the First, Bishop of Rome, political authority over Rome in the western part of its lands. At this point in time, the Pope solidified its rule over much of central Italy. So expanded beyond Rome, it's it's basically conquering, you know, through its office, uh, through politics, the, the nation of Italy. Yep. This document would later be proven to be a forgery in the 16th century by a, a literary humanist scholar named Lorenzo Valla. He's showing that the words and the concepts that were used in this document were not in existence. They weren't words and concepts that were used at the time of Constantine's life in the 4th century. A key component to the Pope's claim of authority over lands and nations was fraudulent. Turns out, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, the thing is that the damage was already done by it. So that document came up in, what, 750, I said? Yeah. It wasn't until the fifteen early 1500s, uh, like the beginning of the 1500s, that... That document was proven to be a forgery. That is already five, six, basically 700 years, 750 years. The damage was done. So what you got to realize, too, by the time you get to the time where this is found to be a forgery, the Renaissance is underway, the Reformation is underway. Um, at least Luther and the early Reformation would have been uh, beginning. Um, and really, this stuff like this was a big reason as to why the Reformation, because, you know, People are starting to see that all the things they've been taught about the Pope and his authority and what the church in Rome has been doing, they're like, well, this, this isn't right. This isn't biblical. And then even through things like proving uh, the forgery of the donation of Constantine, not only is it not biblical, but it's not even historical. Andrew actually already mentioned part of like one of the biggest reasons the papacy came to power. In the 750 year period between the donation of Constantine appearing and the proving of it as a forgery, a lot can happen. Uh, basically, from 750 onwards, that's when the papacy starts its real rise to power. With this kind of document behind it, emperors throughout Europe were basically bending to the Pope particularly through Charlemagne, who had ruled his territory, uh, consisted of France, Belgium, Netherlands, Switzerland, almost all of modern Germany, most of Italy, uh, parts of Spain. He was crowned emperor by one of the popes. This basically gave credence to an idea that, oh, the papacy has authority to crown kings and queens and emperors of the world. And Charlemagne's ties to the Western Church and to the papacy through this 
uh, helped to establish all these areas come under uh, the title of the Holy Roman Empire. And over the course of the next several hundred years, very rich and prominent families seeing that, oh, the Pope has the ability to appoint people to high noble places like kings, like dukes or whatever. Uh, let's cozy up to the Bishop of Rome. Let's cozy up to the church. So families of Germany, Italy, Spain, they started basically investing into the papacy. I won't go through all of them, but there's a large amount of popes from the 11th century onwards. A lot of the popes in those periods were actually from these rich families, including the Borgias. And uh, as this worldly power and influence begins to wield on the papacy... And as the papacy becomes a vehicle for wielding worldly power and influence, needless to say, the office of the papacy and the people who hold it often themselves were very worldly, engaging in all of the vices and pleasures of life uh, that their power wields. So you have all kinds of sordid accounts of immorality, illegitimate children uh, being born to popes and things of that sort. You know, it's a very, a very uh, colorful, but also very gross history of, of the abuse and the misuse of the church for for these worldly means. Basically, it was a political office uh, at this point. He was practically another king himself by this point of the middle area of, of the Middle Ages um, uh, into the high Middle Ages. But on top of it. Ever since the collapse of Rome in 410, there was a gradual distancing of just culture, language, liturgy. Uh, the history between the eastern side of the empire, where the eastern churches were, like Constantinople and Alexandria and so on, they grew distant with the western church, that is the Latin Roman church. So you just had a natural separation in culture, language, liturgy, discussion, theology over time. And that came to a head by uh, basically 1054. There were disagreements on the doctrine of the double procession of the, of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, uh, which the Eastern Church didn't like. But on top of that, the Roman bishop was... In the early 11th century, uh, middle 11th century, Bishop Leo IX went on a campaign, uh, a greatest hits tour throughout Europe, trying to go and consolidate his supremacy uh, over the church. So he was going through all these various Western churches and basically having people pledge their fealty to him, the monasteries, the other bishops. Well, he then tried to go and do that in the Eastern Empire. It didn't work out in Constantinople. And he was basically told to uh, to kick rocks, and he excommunicated the patriarch, the bishop of Constantinople, and the Constantinopolitan bishop, and the other eastern bishops excommunicated the Roman bishop. So there's the rift now, and that basically allowed for the pope to now officially go unchallenged uh, ecclesiastically he, he was unchallenged and that didn't always work out well like uh andrew said there was a large amount of immorality that started coming up to this time basically the church the medieval church turned into a madhouse you had at one period in time three duly 
elected popes living at once. <laughs> yep, for a time even the you had the papacy was moved to Avignon, which was a city in France. And then there, that resulted in that there being at one point three rival claims to the papacy all at the same time during the 14th <laughs> and into the 15th century. So you have these rival claims of the papacy and you have all the various political maneuvering and corruption. The problem is, I mean, these guys are doing this in the church and it's leading to all kinds of problems like churches being kicked out people being kicked out interdicts where the sacraments are basically being wielded mm. as tools for political ends basically mm -hmm. you know we're not going to allow you to get baptized have the mass get married etc uh, until you fall into line with what we're doing it really has just yeah. become this horribly abusive and corrupt system by this time and really this is by this time, starting to plant the seeds for the Reformation that is to come because people are starting to see that, you know, this is bad. Uh, this is this is horribly corrupt and something must be done about it. You were saying basically then that they were wielding excommunication of entire countries yep. as a political tool to make people bow. Yeah. So like if you were in a country and the king of your country does something the Pope doesn't like, he'll put the whole country under an interdict and say... Yeah, no sacraments for you, which the problem is when you believe what Rome does about the sacraments, <laughs> that they're necessary for salvation. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big club. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure that's going to put on that country and on its rulers to fall in line. Yeah, so that takes us then closer to what we want to get at now. That was just the an overview of the rise of the papacy in a 1500 year period basically the first 1500 years from the apostolic church and that is all the time we have on this week's episode of once for all delivered we hope you learned something uh, we hope you have enjoyed all of this time we have taken from you because you're not gonna get it back <laughs> that's right it's ours um, now it is but but we thank you. Um, if you have any questions, comments, you can reach us the usual ways. OFADpodcast at gmail.com, uh, at OFADpodcast on Facebook, or the artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to call it X. You can't make me. <laughs> yes, you can also reach us in all of the unordinary ways. We would also accept letters in the form of snail mail, pigeon, carrier pigeons. Yeah, carrier pigeons. If you can find a way to get Pony Express, Pony Express, that that would actually be something I would I would accept that gladly. So you can you would still have to singing telegrams. No, no, no singing oh, telegrams. What, what, that reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Clue. Uh, this is a singing telegram. Yeah, uh, Tim Curry's in it. It's a good movie. Um, I mean, I don't watch movies, mm -hmm. but. Uh, if I did, that would be one. That's all the time that we have. Heidi, you should take it from here. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, Leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. 
A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.